What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? This poem was written by Langston Hughes, an influential African-American poet, and it was published in uh, 1951 on the eve of the Civil Rights Movement as part of a larger collection of poems called Montage of a Dream Deferred. And with its jazz and blues infused diction, you might wonder what Hughes's poem has to do with the Advent season. Um, but the moment before the dawn of the New Covenant, the beginning of the New Testament, was also a time of deferred dreams, especially the longing for the Messiah. It's hard to pinpoint the exact condition of the messianic dream during this time. For some, the dream may have dried up like a raisin in the sun. It may have retained some of its sweetness, but it had shriveled up, far removed from the full-bodied fruit of Isaiah's visions. For others, it may have felt like a festering sore, infected with cynicism and bitterness. And still for others, after so much time, the whole idea of an anointed one may have simply stunk like rotten meat, like the carcass of a dead dream trampled underfoot by the Roman Empire. Whatever the case, the messianic dream had been deferred for centuries, and there was no sign of realization. But as we see in our gospel passage for this morning, things were about to change. God's great breakthrough was just around the corner. This Advent, we have walked and waited with three important Old Testament characters, Joseph, Moses, and David. And we've been encouraged to live into their lives, to live into their stories, and to learn lessons about how God works in our own lives, how God fulfills his promises in our own lives. So now on the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, only five days till Christmas, we come to our last character, Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, uh, who some people view as sort of the final representative of the Old Testament era. And looking at Zachariah's story, I'd like us to consider three aspects of God's breakthrough. First, how God breaks into routine and ritual. Second, how God breaks into silence, demanding silence. And then third, how God breaks into the darkness and guides his people out of it. First, we see that God breaks into ritual and routine. Uh, in verse 9, it says that Zechariah was chosen by Lot to enter the temple. But what was he doing in the temple? Well, he was burning or offering incense. It's not usually what we think of when we think of Old Testament offerings, is it? We, typ we typically think of blood offerings for sin. But this incense offering called the Tamid is an important part of Old Testament worship. In Exodus 30, we learned this offering was to be conducted twice a day, morning and evening. So here is Zechariah in old age, selected by lots to be the one to enter the holy place and make this offering. This was literally a once in a lifetime opportunity, a great honor for Zechariah. There were many priests and many priests never had the opportunity to do this. Still, from the perspective of God's people, this offering was routine. After all, it had happened twice a day since Mount Sinai. And how many of these offerings 
had been made and met with silence. Zechariah, despite his own deferred dreams and those of his people, faithfully carries out the incense burning ritual and God meets him there in the ritual. There's a lot we can say about the message that Gabriel has for Zechariah, but I'd like us to focus on five words in verse 13. Your prayer has been heard. This gets at the symbolism of the Tamid ritual. The rising incense represents the prayers of God's people rising up to God. In verse 10 of our passage, we see that many people were outside praying. In Psalm 141, the psalmist says, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And in Revelation, the passage that was just read, we see that incense is a metaphor for the prayers of God's people, for the prayers of the saints. And there are really two types of prayers that are being answered here, aren't there? First of all, the private prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth for a child, for a son. But also the public prayers of Israel for the coming of the Messiah. And of course, John the Baptist will be the one who prepares the way for the coming of the Messiah. So first, the first thing we see about God's breakthrough in the story of Zechariah is that God breaks into ritual into the twice a day routine of offering incense, demonstrating that he hears prayer and answers prayer, albeit in his own time and his own way. The second aspect of God's breakthrough is closely related to this idea that God hears prayer, and that is that God breaks into silence and in turn demands silence. With the appearance of, of Gabriel, God breaks about 300 years of intertestamental silence Can, canonically speaking, God has not spoken since the very last prophets of the Old Testament. So finally, there's a word from God. But what is Zechariah's response? We see that in verse 18. How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. This seems like a natural, legit response, right? Uh, after all, the angel had promised the biologically impossible. Um, even good old father Abraham asked for a sign when God told him that he would have a son in his old age. But notice Gabriel's response here to Zechariah's question, verses 19 and 20. I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. Gabriel seems to be saying, I've just come directly from God's very presence to tell you about his answer to your prayers Amazon same-day shipping can't touch this. <laughs> and you want a sign? So we see that Zachariah's muteness then is a rebuke for his unbelief. Still, this whole episode is a bit puzzling, isn't it? After all, why does God break his silence only to silence the one to whom he has broken his silence? Um, at least one biblical response would be that Zachariah's muteness underlines the importance of silence before God, especially when he speaks his word. Um, in the context of condemning the people for worshiping mute idols who neither hear or speak, Habakkuk declares, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all earth keep silence before him. We might also consider the case of Job, right? He loses everything of earthly value and he vows that he will not keep silent. And he doesn't, nor especially do his know-it-all friends. This makes Job perhaps the most verbose book in all of Holy Writ. It is full of discourse, advice, and quite frankly, a lot of hot air. 
God finally does break through in Job and in a very dramatic fashion in a whirlwind. And he begins by, he starts by denouncing human discourse. He says, who is this that darkens the divine plan by words of knowledge? And after his awesome address, basically saying, who do you think you are, Job? Job responds, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. He silences himself before God. So with Zechariah and his muteness, we see the hand of God placed over his mouth. We see the greatness of God and the power of his word to do the impossible. And now to a third aspect of God's New Testament breakthrough. God breaks into the darkness and leads his people out of it. A son is finally born to Elizabeth and Zechariah. And after Zechariah writes on a tablet that the boy's name will be John, um, his tongue is loosened and he begins to speak, praising God. His recovered tongue gives utterance to a beautiful prophecy, a canticle, a song, a psalm of praise. Some people call this the Benedictus. And there are two parts to this song. First, it's a celebration of the Messiah and the fulfillment of God's promises. And then at the end, it's an address to his newborn son, John. The canticle ends with one of the most poetic passages in the entire New Testament, verses 78 through 79. The rising sun shall visit us from high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to give our feet, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So in the same way that God breaks into ritual and silence, he breaks into human darkness and guides his people out of it. Light imagery is so prevalent in the Bible, we don't even really need to talk about it very much. It's, it's so, it's so uh, commonplace. We go back to the beginning, back to God's original breakthrough, right? In Genesis 1, where God broke into chaos and darkness by saying what? Let there be light. Let there be light. And Zechariah's song, The Light, provides guidance. It guides our feet into the way of peace or into the way of shalom. And this is reminiscent of Exodus, where the Lord leads his people out of Egypt with a pillar of fire by night. And Zechariah's words also foreshadow, or in the case of this metaphor, foreshine, Jesus' statement in John, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So we have considered three aspects of God's breakthrough with Zachariah's story. First, how God breaks into ritual and routine, how God breaks into silence and in turn demands silence, and then how God breaks into the darkness, bringing his light. But how does this fit into our own context? As we near the end of Advent, after a very challenging year, I'd like to draw three specific applications from Zachariah's story. First, be obedient in routine and ritual, even when little seems to come of it. Uh, in C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters, a senior demon, Screw Tape, relates the following to a junior demon, Wormwood. This is what Screw Tape says Sooner or later, God withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience. He leaves the human to stand on its own legs to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. Our cause is never in more danger than when a human, no longer desiring but intending to do God's will, 
looks around at a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished, asks why he has been forsaken, and still obeys. Zechariah is a paragon of faithfulness in the face of routine and disappointment. A second application, make space to be silent before God. Sometimes we can't hear the voice of God because we are not quiet enough to hear it. Remember how God speaks to Elijah in the still, small voice. It's true that Zechariah does see an angel, and it's pretty hard not to see an angel in a dark room with not very much furniture. Still, maybe we too, uh, caught up in the noise of our own lives, have entertained angels, God's messengers, with God's messages, unaware. As we near the end of Advent, let's continue to work at silence. Let's put our hands over our mouths and use this time as an opportunity for reflection. Let's muffle the din and racket of the season to hear God's voice to us. And finally, be watchful for God's light. We sometimes drown out God's light with our own artificial light. This time of year, the days are short and the nights are long, and we mitigate the extra darkness with electricity. And with all of the light pollution, it's hard to see the night sky. I can't imagine the Magi would have seen the star in a modern city. The fact is, we often try to lighten our spiritual darkness with artificial lights and gaudy neon. Perhaps we've even been blinded by our own light. We can be so enamored with our own self-generated light that we miss God's very dawn. So as we enter Christmas season in a few days, let's remember God's great breakthrough, not only by looking to the past as Zachariah's life, but also being attentive to God's potential breakthrough in our own lives by watching faithfully and praying diligently. Amen.